Our sermon today is from Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I get up. You can tell what I'm thinking from far away. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, see, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and in front and lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high I can't attain it. Where will I go from your spirit, or where will I run from your face? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in death, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and live across the farthest sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will hold me. If I say, I'm sure the darkness will cover me, and the light about me be night, even darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day, because darkness is like light with you. Because you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. If I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made, your works are wonderful. My soul knows that so well. My frame wasn't hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Before there were any days for me, you wrote in your book every one of the days formed for me. Your thoughts are so precious to me, O God. There is such a a large number of them. If I tried to count them, they outnumber sand. If I wake up, I'm still with you. I wish you would kill the wicked, O God. You violent man, get away from me. They talk against you with intentional malice. Your enemies take your name in vain. Don't I hate the people who hate you, O Lord? Don't I loathe the people who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. O God, search me and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any grievous way inside me, and leave me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last week we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, and we, we were looking especially at verse 10. Ephesians 2, verse 10. For you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for the good works he prepared beforehand for you to do, so you can walk in them. Ephesians 2, 10. So, that was written... Someday, sometime in the 40s or 50s, 80, 40, 50, similar time around there. This poem that, that Sarah just wrote, read was written about 800 B.C. 800 B.C. We talk about the poem that Sarah just read as the Old Testament, right? It's an ancient, ancient, ancient work. And then you have this New Testament book, this teaching where Paul, this writer Paul, talks about God we, are God, we being God's workmanship. Workmanship. Do you see a, do you see a connection between that and this, and this poem? Do you see that? It's, it's, it's kind of wonderful. And, and the reason I, I get kind of jazzed about it, I want to point it out so you didn't see it, is, is you, will, you will hear people eager to tell you that our Bibles are not whole. 
You'll find people all eager to tell you that you shouldn't trust the Bible, you shouldn't trust the Scripture. I mean, after all, there's that Old Testament God, and he's scary, and, 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 and there's no mercy, and it's all wrath. Or, and then there's the New Testament God, and then there's what Paul did with him. And, and then, you know, who knows what you can trust. But I am here to say to you, I'm here to claim that the Bible is God's words, and, and when we see a congruency, a unity, a continuation, where the ideas are so perfectly in step across hundreds, centuries of time. How does that happen? It doesn't even happen in our America. It doesn't happen in our, it doesn't happen with our constitution. It doesn't happen with our documents. Something else is going on here. I think something else is going on here that we're, we may not be ready for, and that's the idea that a God has spoken. All right, well, I'm excited about talking about what God says. And, 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 the, and, the, and the excitement I have is to assure you, assure you, a God has spoken into the world. A God has spoken into reality. All right, let's take a look at the poem. It's a longer poem. And so let me break it down into five parts. Take a look now. There's five parts to the poem. It has five sequences, five movements, as it were. The first movement is verses 1 through 6. This is where it puts it out there. The knowledge, the all-knowing God. Does anybody remember the, the fancy word for the all-knowing God? The omniscient God. The omniscient God. In, this first, in this first, the first language of that first, uh, of the first section, it's very simple and very direct. And do you notice, I just said it's about omniscience and theology read it it's all personal it's all just it's all a man describing his own experiences his own sense of some god being close to him hmm. it's not abstract it's not like lofty ideas right it's practical it's it's his experience it's kind of cool very personal all right the second the second movement is verses 7 through 12 now the the, the all-knowing god he steps forward a little bit. He's the God of not only is God all knowing, He is all present. He is present everywhere He knows. It's not that He knows from just from afar, He knows what's going on over there. No, it's this idea that He's present there as well as here. What's the fancy word for being present everywhere? Omnipresence. Omnipresence. Omniscient and omnipresent. One seems to feed the next, right? One seems to progress with the next. They seem, I think he is intentionally deepening his insight. He wants to take you deeper into the knowing of God. Because I think he thinks it's an adventure. We'll get to that. But that's, that's the third standard. The third, the, third, the third movement begins in verse 13. You formed my inward parts. And I think it continues down, although... I didn't mark it well, down to verse 18. And this is about secret, intricate, unknowable things God does. So, so that, this is interesting. So first we've, we've been told God knows everything. Then we've been told God is present everywhere. But then we're told that God is wise. Now you see why that's different? Like we, it, It's enough for God to know everything. Okay, he knows everything. Oh, he's present everywhere. But that knowledge and that presence is married to a wonderful wisdom 
that makes and creates your days and creates in the, in the womb. And so God is wise and good. It's not just knowing, not just knowing, not just present, but present with a wise goodness. What's the next section? You probably noticed this next section right away when she was reading the poem. If you've never read this poem before, when you get to verse 19, you may well think that this doesn't sound like it belongs in the poem. Does anybody else think that? It doesn't sound like it belongs in the poem. The fourth section, in verses 19 through 22, all of a sudden, the poet starts talking about how much he hates evil. How, how repulsed he is in some of the strongest language in the Bible. Complete hatred? How, why does the Bible talk about, why is that, is that good? Then, that's the fourth section. The fifth section of the last two verses. The last two verses. And the last two verses pivot. He's been talking to you. He's been telling you about God, talking to God. Then he pit, all of a sudden he just gets right down to brass tacks. And there's a sequence. You can't even see it. In the English, it's totally cannot see it in the English. But these are all the strongest imperatives in Hebrew possible. Six times. No. See. Try. No. Lead. He just, just starts begging God. Begging God for more. Double down is what he says. In a sequence of what almost could sound like an impious forwardness or, or too aggressive with God somehow. There it is. Now, I see, I've already hinted at this, at this, at this uh, structural Structurally, when you understand poetry, poetry is often written with a lot of structure. So the idea is you begin with God's knowing, then that advances, the knowledge advances into knowing his presence, that gets deeper, knowing his wisdom. Now, once you get to the point of knowing his wisdom, the, the poet seems to go through a crisis of anger about wickedness, and then desperately cries out to God. Now, the wonderful thing about this is the poem find it has an arc. It goes up like that, you see? It has this rising motion to it. It has a momentum. It, it invites, and I think when you see momentum, God's saying, come on in. Come on in. Be a part of my momentum. Be a part of the momentum of knowing me. Because the knowledge of God is constantly moving. It's constantly alive, right? There's no knowing God that's static. Knowing God is a living thing, because he's the living God. All right, so I think this, what I'm claiming here is that the sequence and the structure of the poem is inviting you into its hope. That's kind of fun, isn't it? It's kind of exciting. Finally, um, I observe in a larger structure, I question, if he's portraying this compelling intimacy of God's grace, as I think he is here in this poem, he's asking another question. Are, will you engage in the journey of knowing God? Are you, do, are you interested? Did you hear how personal this person is with him? Are you intrigued? All right, so let's, let's, that's, kind of, that's, that's, our, that's our broad view of the text. I like to stand up and kind of look at the text, a landscape view, a panoramic view of what we're going to do. Let's just dive in. 
let's jump into the word itself. And the first question that comes out for me, uh, and I guess it's more than diving in just the word yet, it's just kind of, but the first question that kind of arrests me, it kind of grabs me, the question that I think is so real here is, what kind of God is this? What kind of God is this? There are two ways people tend to think about spiritual things. Either one God is M-I-A. <laughs> like, that is, that is what most people will act that way in this general. God is M-I-A. He is missing in action. He ain't here and he don't care. He's on the edge of the universe watching or something. He set it all up like a clockmaker and set it on its way. And you better, better do your best. Better do your best because you don't have time for you. If he has time for anybody. It's the view of a God who's abstract. This is the God of the philosophers. This is the God of the first, the prime mover. This is the supreme being. This is the God who is posited in most rational systems as that which they can appeal to. This is the higher power of the AA, right? This is the, it's all that, right? All those things. But it's not those things. This God is a person. <laughs> if you get bored while I'm speaking, read the poem. Everything he says about this God is personal. It's all very intimate. Everything is. What sort of God is this? It is not a God of the books. It's not a God of, the, of the dusty theology. It's not a God who's remotely watching, remotely viewing. It's a God here. It's a God who wants to know you personally, offers to know you personally, invites you and pursues you personally. <laughs> I love this God. There's something about this God that's so wonderful. He is not the distant watchmaker. He is not disconnected. He is not uncaring. He isn't just about the big stuff. No, he's about my little stuff. Praise him. I love, I love you, Father. Thank you. But you know what's interesting? There's something else here, too. I want you to hear really clearly from my heart. How many of you have heard the song Hallelujah? By uh, who sang it? Who, who, who sang it originally? Leonard. Leonard Cohen's song, yes, right. Hallelujah. If you're familiar with that song, I always liked the cover by, it was covered by a lot of other people. One of the things he says in that is that David knew a secret chord. He knew a secret chord that he could play, and it pleased God. <sighs> gives me chills like really wouldn't you want to know that chord wouldn't you want to know so you could get God to do something for you and if you're not if you don't have the view of God as being distant the the second view that I see of God that I think is just as wrong is it's just kind of superstitious oh maybe I can is there some secret way I can get this God is there is there a rule is there a trick to getting this God to look at me is there a secret way that I can unlock the universe so it works for me? A lot of people want that, don't they? A lot of people are looking for that. A lot of people are rubbing their lucky rabbit's foot, whatever it happens to be, right? Hoping it's going to come true. But didn't you see this here? Did you read the poem? It's so breezy. <laughs> How hard is it to find God? It ain't hard at all. <laughs> is, God, is God retreating from you so you've got to know the right words or the right chords or the right... No. Not at all. He says to those who cry out to him, I will come to you. 
He's free. Grace is free. Faith in God, faith in Jesus, transforms people from dead people to living people. That's the work of our Savior, the living Lord. There's no secret cord. Don't be superstitious. Every intimacy that David described in here is offered to even the most immature child of God. I don't care if you just became a Christian or if you personally had the poorest theology in the room. It just doesn't matter. This poem is saying, knowing me, says the Lord, is something I give away. I chase. I pursue. It's mine to give. It's not even yours to find. It's mine to give. <laughs> what a God and what a Savior. So what I want to say, I want to say this first. The only way to understand the God of the Bible is to understand he is a person and you are a person and the way you talk to a person is like a person. Not like a force, not like a law, not like a trick. You go to a person with who you are personally. First, I want to talk to the person who doesn't have faith tonight. I don't know if you have faith or not tonight, but if you don't have faith, I want you to say, I want you to hear something. This poem, this poem is saying that it's possible to actually know God. You may not believe that. You may find that hard to believe or incredulous or, or absurd or, or a fantasy, but, but, but I want you, if you read it, you probably heard it. This poem describes that it must be possible for common humans, pre-scientific, post-scientific, whoever, to know this God. That's pretty amazing. You should cherish that. That possibility doesn't exist for a lot of people in their minds. This is saying it is. But Christian, now believers, brothers and sisters, I'm praying that you will be, you will experience tonight a holy dissatisfaction with your current intimacy with God. Because I think every believer who loves him is always having a holy dissatisfaction. <laughs> because that's the mark of somebody who really loves God, because they never have enough. <laughs> it's somebody who really knows God, because they, they know there's more to know. It's somebody who truly loves God, because he knows, he knows there's more love to be experienced, known, and enjoyed in return. <gasps> See, uh, the adventure of knowing God, brothers and sisters, those who know him, is God never lets you sit still. And I and he invites you into deeper knowing, deeper enjoying, deeper loving. See, and that's the way this ends. David gets to a point when he finally sees the knowing of God. I'm hoping this happens to you. You finally see the knowing of God. What happens in those last two verses? David is finally dissatisfied because he doesn't have enough of God yet. Is that you? Is that you? Let's hope so. Let's hope that we can get there by God's grace. So let's begin. So first, our first point is that we discover and grow and reveal the intimacy of his sovereign grace as we discover the story God is telling through us. And then, and we'll see after that, we discover and grow and reveal the intimacy of his sovereign grace as we find him, kind of, God kind of rubbing off on us. That's what happens in this text. God rubs off on him. And then finally... I think we will discover and can grow and can, it will reveal how intimate his sovereign love and grace is as we grow into the momentum of the kingdom and the Holy Spirit ourselves. I think it's there. I think it's the invitation for us to double down like he does 
with those in paradise. All right, so finally, first, first thing, I'm sorry, as we discover the story God is telling through us, that's what we're discovering grow, real intima- the real intimacy of God. I, so, you see the hem me in before and behind? You see that? I love that. Look, look in verse 5. You hem me in behind and in front. And it's like, it's like, I can't get away from you. I back up. Oh, there you are. Boom. Oh, there you are. Boom. You get the, the picture here? It's almost like a, it's like they're in a traffic jam. It's like, it's like God's in a traffic jam with you. You bump it into them as soon as you walk along. It's a really wonderfully homey image. But what is being described here? David has learned to track that his story is telling a story of God's love. He knows that somehow. He's clued in, and he's telling us about these things, like, like, like waking up and seeing, oh, you're still there. You know, like he's telling you about these things he's experienced. You know? And he's, he's telling you, he's, he's saying, look, as I looked at my story, I realized, oh my goodness, God's all over it. He was like behind me, and he's right in front of me too. I can't move without bumping into what he's doing and has been doing. This can be so hard to understand. I, it can be so hard to plumb. I, when I went to, you've heard me talk about this when I went to Wheaton. Wheaton College is a very, a very middle-class, uptight kind of school. Every Midwestern, very culturally homogenous. Well, I didn't, want to t- I didn't want to tell people that my dad was a drug dealer. Yeah. I didn't want to tell people that I grew up in a brothel. I didn't want to tell. I was ashamed of my story, right? Only to find out, only to see, only to one day see, and this happened in Atlanta, how my father had prepared that story so I could minister to all sorts of people. Praise him, right? So I could be there with hookers or dealers. It didn't matter. Praise him. Ah, he had a story to tell. And his story was about how God loves a ruin like me. How about you, sister? Do you have a story to tell? I know you do. About the same thing, right? Do you tell your story? Oh, you are being invited into seeing it and claiming it, right? Man, and we're invited, and I love this, walking into even more story that he's writing because I see the story behind me and now I'm going, oh well, maybe there's even a better story ahead. Like, wow. And here, I love the fact that he never says anything in this whole poem telling you to do anything. He doesn't tell us to do anything, does he? There's no instruction, go and do this, go and Not like that. No, it's, 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 that's not, the kingdom of grace isn't like that. It's an invitation to walk into what God does. I'm getting a little excited. What does it look like to walk into what God does? How do we walk into what God does? It's so hard. You have to show up. What else do you have to do? That's pretty much it. It's amazing. That is incredible. You You need to see how incredible that is. That's one of the reasons why worship happens when we're talking to each other. You know why? Because we showed up for each other, and God arranged that. And, that. and you know when we were all talking to each other, and people were meeting you, Andrea? You know what's happening right there? Something God prepared. Praise Him. What were you doing, brother, because you were here in worship? You just walked into it, didn't you? Because you showed up. We need to show up for Him, because He's got stories to tell about His grace through us.
We are God's workmanship. Let's get on it. Let's get excited. <sighs> Why am I so excited about this? Look at, look at verse. The stories are all over this. But look at verse 15. My frame wasn't hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Wait a second, that's not what I wanted to read. That's not it, never mind. It's actually verse 8. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in death, you're there. That's what I want to look at, sorry. Why is that important? Uh, that word death there is actually the word sheol. If you, some of you know your Psalm 139, you probably wondered. Oh, wait a second, isn't that supposed to be Sheol? Sheol is the Hebrew place of the abode of the dead. It's just, it's like a holding pen in the thinking of the, we're not clear what Sheol is, but it, but it means death. It means death. And that's the way we'll take it here. Why? Why did I stop on that? Why, why is that one verse kind of tickling my heart? What story is God telling? When this ancient man David, 800 years before Christ, says, even if I were dead, I know you're there. Well, you see, David is speaking under the direct operation and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what he is actually preparing in those words is for Jesus, who was hung upon a cross and executed, buried in a tomb, Sheol, death, and what happened then? What happened after that? What happened? What's the next part of the story? He rose again from the dead. What is, what is David's confidence? Death will not stop my God. Amen? And that was true all the way to the cross. Praise our Father. And you see, David is caught up in Jesus' story. We can get caught up in Jesus' stories as part of our story because these are the stories of grace. These are the stories of life. Put your trust in Jesus. Put your trust in his story, in the story of his love for you, giving up his life for you, a story of love and God's love chasing you. Because that's what Jesus is. It's the chase of God loving humans who don't love him back. Praise him. And you know what? Even death can't separate you. Because God conquered death. <laughs> Praise him. What a God. What a Savior. What a Lord. So, first, we discover the story God is telling through us. The story about Jesus he's telling through us. <laughs> Man, it's good stuff. Let's go further. We will discover and grow in the intimacy of a sovereign grace as we find God rubbing off on us. What am I talking about here? Let's go back to... Let's go back to... Section 4, beginning in verse 19. I wish you would kill the wicked, oh God. Let's read the verse before it, see if we can get some insight. I wake up, I'm still with you. I wish you... Is that the first thing he thinks when he wakes up? It seems like, that. almost sounds like that, doesn't it? It sounds like that's what he's saying. When I wake up, you're still there. And he seems to have this thought. Does it seem a little bit like a non sequitur to you? Like it doesn't really follow? Like it, doesn't, it seems like he changed the subject, maybe? 
Something is happening to David in the intimacy. Something happens in the intimacy. When God moves towards you, offering you intimacy, something happens inside you. You move forward to God with intimacy to cry out. Something starts happening in you. What happened? God starts rubbing off on you. He starts rubbing off on you. That's what happens. That's what's happening with David. God's rubbing off on him. Because he says, what does he say? I can't stand the people who can't stand you. It's interesting. Huh? Like, somehow, he, he's not jealous for himself here. He's jealous for his God. And he is outraged at wickedness because God's in him. And this is a characteristic of the people of God. They, 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 get, they get irritated. It's irritating to be around wickedness around you. You begin to more and more. As, you know, sometimes you might think, Carol, that the world's getting worse as you get older. And it probably is. But I think as you get older, you also are getting less and less tolerant of the wickedness around you. Because that wickedness was there when we were young. When you were young. It was there. But you get tired of it. David's so weak. And don't you get tired of nonsense? Don't you get tired of all the foolishness around you? Don't you just get weary of it? Don't you just get... F- and let me just, the closer we get to Jesus, the closer we get in an intimacy, he begins to rub on, and we begin, but it isn't just about others. Oh, it's good. His first one, you know, we get outraged at wickedness, and that will happen to you, and that's what's happening to David here. And that's why it's called a complete hatred, sometimes a perfect hatred in verse 22, because it's coming from the Holy Spirit coming from the presence of God's love. Yes, God's love creates a hatred of the wicked. Because love and hatred are just sides of the same coin. But I don't want to just dwell on that. For not only will you hate the sin you see in others. Look in verse 23. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me. Three of the commands are a direct request for God to get busy, to do what it takes with the sin in you. Art of faith. God's rubbing off on him. And all of a sudden, he can't stand the wickedness around him. It makes him, it, it, it makes him so upset. You can hear the, the, how angry, how upset he is. But he's not just stopping there. He sees it in him. He's upset about himself. God does that. God is in you. You are no longer happy with the sin you've been living in. And you want something different. <sighs> this, this, see if there's any test me, know me. I hear such a final too, like, like a final, like, do what it takes, Father. Are you willing to pray that with me? Do what it takes. Do what it takes to get my attention. Do what it takes to get me to know you. Do what it takes to make me somebody diff. Do whatever. Are you ready to say that and mean it? Because I know we said things like that at, you know, at Bible camp. I give everything to Jesus, you know. I surrender all. And we meant it, we thought. All these years later, who knows if we really meant it. You could mean it tonight, though. I think it's something you privately, I'm not going to say it for you. You go to Jesus and you say it. I'm not going to pray that for you. Well, I actually do pray stuff like that for you, but so you can blame me for bad things, I guess. But I want you to be praying, seeking these things, right? Because I think that's where Jesus really meets us. When we are the ones who say, hey, will you do whatever it takes to root out what's in me? I prayed this this weekend. Did, did I share this with you? I can't remember. Did I share it? I shared it with everybody. It's kind of embarrassing. I didn't want to share it with you, honey, because I know you're going to hold me accountable about it. 
and now you're going to know, and so, oh well. So I have, I have what you call a challenging tongue. And, uh, and, and I, you know, I, tongue control is a big problem for me. And I was, I was making a defense with Scott, a member of Trinity, as to why I thought it was legitimate for me to say certain words. And he, he said something. He just like, we sit in the car and he goes, I thought that was sin. And he wasn't challenging me. He wasn't like being mean. He wasn't, so I thought that was sin. I was like, no, and I had this apply this defense, you know, about not taking the Lord's name in vain. And by the way, the God's fiercest command about your language is not taking God's name in vain. It's, in the, it's right here and there. He's upset that they're taking God's name in vain. We don't use God's name as a curse word. That is one of the Ten Commandments. But uh, there's also other commands beyond that about control of the tongue and about coarse language and stuff like that. I've been, I have been going to God about some stuff in my heart for months, right? And I go, and, I, and I, I'm, t- I'm preaching on this text. And one thing I can't stand preaching on texts that make me do something, you know? Because how am I going to go and preach to you all if I'm not doing what the text says? So I get down on my knees, and I'm like, Father, I want you, would you show me a grievous way inside of you? Would you show me how I'm, is it this? You know, I, said, I had something in my heart. Is it this hat? No. I was, Father, is it, is it this? I, and I somehow just this? No. Well, Father, would you show, what's grievous in me? What do you mean, is it what Scott said? Yes. No, 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 no. You might be saying, how do you know God was speaking in your heart? It's an, it is something of an intuitive and personal subjective thing, but let me assure you, <clears throat> I tested that immediately because <laughs> I was not, I didn't think God was saying this to me. I thought I, that couldn't be God saying that, so I asked him again. Then I waited a little while, what, five minutes or so, because I'm going to ask God again. I really wanted to hear from you in my heart. Am I saying, yes, I want you to change your mouth. It really hurt. I don't know why it hurt, but I knew it was true. So I'm here to repent before you all. And now my wife, who hears what I say in private, will know if I have actually repented. As I, as I finish this point, I just want to give glory to God for that, right? That's an answer to your prayers, y'all. You're praying that God would, I would become more holy, whether I like it or not. And there it is. Praise Him. You know, often, have you heard somebody say, hey, ask, ask God to break your heart with what breaks His? I think that's a nice prayer. I like it. You ever heard that prayer? Ask God to break your heart with what breaks. I like it. I like it. It's not strictly biblical. What is strictly biblical is this. To ask God for you to find offensive what offends him. That is very biblical. Because that's the work of his people. They are offended by what offends him. All right, we ask for that work. And there's one other part of this. When we realize that God is so present, rubbing off on us, it, mean, it, it, it brings to light a truth. Remember, if God is this present with everybody, he's present for all sin. Everybody who sins, God has been there, present, watching, even sustaining the, the physics that allows them to sin. I don't know how he does that. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how I do it. We're all sin in his presence.
Hebrew word for presence is face. It's in his face. Think of your sin as a personal, in-your-face affair with God. That's a part of what this intimacy entails. And just that is such a prompt for godliness, isn't it? I don't want to do that. Aren't you very careful about what you do in front of certain people? Aren't you? Aren't you? How much more so in the presence of a loving Father? Encouragement to your godliness, I think. But there's more. And I want to end with this point, because I want to get us into just how big and how beautiful this is. Have you heard of the movement called Quiet Quitting? Have you guys heard about this, Quiet Quitting? It's a big movement in our culture right now. It's called Quiet Quitting. And what is happening is people who don't like their work uh, and are frustrated and fed up with, with their job, are, are they're not quitting, but they're just not doing anything more than they have to to, get, to not get fired. They're really, they've checked out. They don't want to be there. And they will, they're just going to keep working until they finally get pushed out the door. They have quietly quit. Now, I, I think that's a cheat, by the way. I think any good Christian knows Jesus will not do such a thing. We don't work for other men. We don't work for other women. We don't work for companies. We work in labor in our lives for God most high and him alone. You don't get to make that confusion. You don't get to make those decisions. You don't get to say, oh, I'll work for this person. You don't get to do those things. Those are wicked. That's a wicked response in this generation. But here's the problem. I see Christians doing the same thing with the church and with spirituality. Have you heard of the ex-evangelical movement? The ex-evangelical? It's all the evangelicals who left. And they're very proud of it. One of the books that came out recently is called God's Refugees. Or the, the church's, church refugees, it's called. About people who've taken a stand against the church and won't go anymore. It makes me really, really angry. You know, um, the, church, the church, the people of God are the ones who killed Jesus. Aren't you glad he didn't quietly quit on us? <laughs> you know? So sick of people who will give up on the church because they were hurt by it, and my Savior was killed by it. And he didn't give up. But this evil, I think it's because people have forgotten something. They've forgotten something. They've forgotten that something that David lives in. And that's the momentum of knowing God. And it does really happen like this. Sometimes you begin by, or you begin discovering how God knows. And you realize, oh wait, God knows everything? So wait, he knows this. He knows, he knows like how many atoms are in my body and like he knows how many hairs are in my head. And he knows like what's going to happen tomorrow. And he knows about, he knows, if you, if your mind kind of explores that. And that's, and, that's a, and that's a first Christian, first idea about God. But you do grow and you begin to grow and you begin to, wait a second, the next step in the, in, the, in the heart is you begin to grow. And the next realization is, wait, he doesn't just know things. He's here. If he's, he's eternity means there's no end to him, so he must be here right now. And that's that next kind of realization as you grow. Because David didn't have a Bible to go to, right? He, he had to have a Holy Spirit in the first five books of the Bible. And that's it. <laughs> and that's not a lot of data. <laughs> but he's putting it together. And eternal, wait a second, eternal God means he knows everything, he means he's everything. And he's everywhere, he means he's with me. I wonder, can I run? No, I can't. And then the next, and he, he hears the maturity as he grows, and he goes, wait a second, 
if he's with me and he knows all things, that means that my veins and my, and that he's, he put this together. Wait a second. And you see, you hear the, you hear the wheels turning? I think you can grow the same way, growing in your knowledge of God. Like you, you get to see more and more. And, and this growth he has in this little poem, this is just a prelude to what? Eternal growth. <laughs> like, there's no end to this, y'all. You never get to the end of knowing how much God knows. You're like, well, really? Yeah, because it gets more exciting. How exciting does it get? I don't know. I don't know, but it's more exciting than I can describe. I'm telling you, you think, oh, that doesn't sound exciting. Well, that's because you're just not smart enough to get excited yet. Just wait till Jesus gives you the smarts to, and it'll help. Trust me. A lot of us, we're thinking through a brick wall because of our minds, and God's going to release that mind too, right? And, and trust me, God is not only going to give you joy, he's going to give you what you need to enjoy it. <laughs> That's pretty cool, isn't it? He's going to give you the equipping to do what? To get more of it, and yet more. And you're thinking, you know something. He's like, no, there's more. And you're like, I think I know something. About no, there's more. Oh, wow, I've had so much God. Could there be more? Oh, of course there is. More. You see, and that's what's happening in the text. That's what's happening here. Until you get to this cascade of imperatives. And this is where it gets so... I just, you know, I want you to do... You know what I'm praying you'll do? All of us will just cast off all of our pride. And shame will sleep. Just be like, please know me, please. Know me, know me, test me, do me. Just start pleading and crying out for that momentum to get started in you. You see, once God starts a momentum of knowing him, it never ends. Once God gets us started in a momentum of knowing him in different times in your life, things flower. Have you seen this happen where you get to know him and things pour out of you that you never saw were there? Things begin to happen. You become a worship leader when you swore you never would. You know, things like that always happen. And the, the promise, potential, and invitation is in the six imperatives. God is saying, he is, remember this is God's word, it's not just the poem of man. By God putting it in the scripture, he's saying, he's putting his seal of approval on the men and women who do stuff like, please, let me know you, anything, try me, do whatever. Oh, he loves it. He just loves it. Because it's all personal. You see, we're going right back to the beginning. Because it's all personal. Because he's a personal God. He has a personal thing. Jesus died personally for people to, to be saved from their sins. God moves in us as persons, with his person, to make us into a new person in him. Praise him. He made me a person. He's a person. You know what that means? I can know him just like I know you. Wow. What a Savior. I, I want to come to the end of this now. There's more here that I want to talk about. But I want to bring your, your attention to the very last line of the poem. The very last line. Lead me in the way everlasting. First of all, there's a common teaching in our generation that there's no heaven in the Old Testament. You just read it. <laughs> the Jews believed in an everlasting life. They were taught that, right? It's right there. The, the idea of eternity is right there. But it's very figurative. And actually, you know, the language right there is kind of strange. You know what it actually says literally in Hebrew? Lead me in the ancient, the most ancient 
Isn't that weird? Now, everlasting is a good translation because God's greater than time. That's what's being implied here is that God is greater and more ancient than the universe, right? He's, his ways are ancient beyond measure. But you know what I hear? I hear Ephesians 1, 4, for in love he predestined Sarah before the creation of the world. Lead me in the way, the ancient way. What is that? In the way of your choices, power, and transcendence. What a God. You know, it's interesting to me, point of fact, and let's be very technical here, that the Old Testament poem actually prefigures Paul's abstraction about the choices and predetermination of an eternal God. And he says it right here in plain language, just like that. I think that's amazing. <laughs> I think it's amazing the scriptures are that congruent and tight. But it was even more amazing. What's even more incredible His sovereign grace, God in his love, invites you into a love for you that's older than time. And you know what? I want to say to Jesus today, will you lead me into that love right now? I want, I want to go. Do you want to go with me? I want to go. You want to go? Let's go. Let's ask him. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for your words. I thank you that you're a God who speaks. You're a God who tells people things. You're a God who tells us things. You're a person. You're a person with a, with a desire and a love and a will and a voice for other persons. And you spoke to me. Why? Of all people. You, you, you talked to one of the worst persons. What a savior. I love you, Father. <clears throat> would you show your love to us? Would you, would you draw us in? If some of us are just feeling so weak, we don't even know how to ask you to do stuff. Will you help us anyway? We're going to sit, we're going to pray today for the person who can't pray for themselves. Will you help that person? And will you, will you move in with your knowing and your love? Would you draw close to us, draw us close to you? Will you, will, you, will you teach us this momentum that's in David here? And will you, will, you, will you let us know it? Will you let us grow in knowing you? We love you, Father. Thank you for, uh, for, for talking to us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for planning stuff for us. And thank you for choosing us. Thank you for dying for us. And thank you for speaking again, again speaking this love to us now. In Jesus' name, amen.